Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's online community forums, offering peer support to nurses on a variety of topics, with information available at aecn.org forward slash online community. Please be advised, this episode features candid discussions of mental health and references to self-harm. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs confidential emotional support, we urge you to seek assistance. Call, text, or chat 988 to connect with a trained suicide and crisis lifeline counselor 24 hours a day, seven days a week across the United States. Now, here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden. This is Connie Barton, and I'm so thrilled to be here today to talk to my colleague here at AACN, Dr. Cindy Kane. Cindy is a clinical practice specialist and uh, someone I work with quite often here at AACN. And Cindy, thank you so much for being willing to talk with us today. Absolutely, my pleasure. You know, the topic that we're talking about today, we actually called it Burning Out at Both Ends, A Leader's Journey Through PTSD, but, but I almost ought to say, and with a military twist. So we picked you for a reason uh, to talk about this whole topic, and the military thing is particularly interesting and makes you wonderfully unique. So do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are as a nurse leader, a member of the military, a Naval Reserve officer, and so on, so we get started? So um, as of this year, I've actually been a nurse 30 years, and for almost all of it, a good 26 years at least, I wore two hats. I was in the civilian world, um, first off a critical care nurse, ICU charge nurse for about 10 years moved into an educator position, eventually from a general educator to critical care educator, and then into management where I was the manager of a ICU and a step-down unit, then eventually ICU and ED director. So that was a good chunk of that. But then this whole time, like I said, the 36 years, that was before I migrated over to AACN. During that whole time, I was also a Naval Reserve officer. I did 33 years before I retired in 2017. I was one of those they call a Mustang. So I had been both enlisted and then officer. It was some of the proudest moments of my life. I mean, I loved being a nurse, have always loved being a nurse, loved the work I've done my entire career, but I'm particularly proud of my career in the in the Navy Reserve. So. Wow. Well, that already brings unique credentials that most of us are not familiar with, and I've never heard the term Mustang. Um, ah, yeah. When you transition from being an enlisted member to an officer, you're classified as a Mustang because you've got all this background and street cred. Um, that's probably not the word they use. Yeah. Um, you know, with the military, so you have a lot better understanding than most new officers coming into the into the military would know. I see. Okay, that makes sense. So you were deployed. Uh, when we talk about Naval Reserve, I think people sometimes think, well, you know, over here doing an office job and so forth. But tell us a little bit about your actual service. I know you were deployed on multiple occasions. And how did that look over your years when you were more active in the military? Yeah, I had actually two deployments into a uh, war zone, uh, combat tours of duty, um, they'd be classified. And uh, they were in 2009, 2010, and 2013, 2014. Both were to the NATO Roll 3 
a multinational medical unit in Kandahar, Afghanistan. I wanted to kind of spell that out. I was about to say MMU, but nobody will know what that is. And so we were a facility that received the highest level facility in theater. We received casualties both straight from the field and also from other forward operating locations, hospitals, or surgical centers out there. But we also had a multinational staff. Uh, I served with British nurses, Australian nurses, Danish nurses, Romanian nurses. Gosh, I'm probably leaving somebody out, but it was truly a multinational medical unit. One of the things that we're quite proud of from the uh, Roll Three in Kandahar was that at least during my tours, both of them, we had a 98% survival rate. If the warrior, now this is for just the members of our coalition forces, if a warrior arrived to the facility with a pulse, we had a 98% survival rate for them, getting them out into definitive care out of country. That is astounding. So, and when you use yeah. the warrior, you're talking about a service member, a military person. Right. It could be a service member from any of the countries that were in theater and served by Kandahar. I see. So you took care of military folks, probably mm-hmm. mostly Americans, but also from many countries. Did you treat civilians as well? We did. And uh, those patients we held on to a lot longer. About a third of our casualties were children. And about a third of our casualties fell into the ANA, ANP, or civilian Afghani. So about a third were children, about a third were local folks who live there. Is that is that what you're yes. saying? And uh, local third... folks, but also um, Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police. I see. I see. I did use the acronym ANA, ANP, but you... that's okay. Yeah, Af- National Army, Afghan National Police. You can count on me to clarify that because I <laughs> surely don't know the terms. So let me ask you this. When you enlisted in the Navy way back, and I'm not sure you said what year roughly did you enlist? I joined, and it was actually, I started out and enlisted in the Air Force. I started oh. in 1980, My but my actual service date starts in 79, 1979 because I enlisted the early enlistment uh, through high school. I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So <laughs> ended up becoming a nurse about 10 years later and used the GI Bill to go through school. Beautiful. Now, do you even remember way back when you signed up, did you ever really think that you'd be deployed to a combat zone? You know, probably not. I think the closest I came was actually, this happened during my nursing program in uh, 1989 when Desert Storm kicked off. And I had just been accepted into the nursing program. And when I went to go and finish my registration, I found out I had been dropped because they just assumed I was being deployed overseas, but I never was deployed. Thankfully, they actually reinstated my registration in the program. And there you were, minding your own business, getting your nursing degrees, being a nurse. And here comes 2009, and they say, all right, you're going to Afghanistan. Yep, they sure did. Two weeks notice to prepare. Two weeks notice, and the stint was six months? The military was trying to be judicious about the amount of time that especially healthcare workers spent in field because they knew the impact was happening. And so while my total amount of activation was about nine months, three months of that was either the early training to prepare us to go overseas or the warrior transition program afterwards. And so it was 180 days boots on ground is what it was called for us, actual time in theater. We couldn't exceed that 180 days without other special permissions. Now, you just referenced the military knew the impact of being deployed. 
And this is really the meat of what we want to talk about because we're here to talk about PTSD and probably relate it to some of what's going on in nursing, regular non-military nursing right now, especially post-COVID. Are you willing to, would you like to talk about the impact that being deployed had um, first go round, second go round, both? What, what do you want to share about that? I thought about this a lot because of COVID. Um, I mean, I thought about it a lot before because I've been doing a lot of therapy, but uh, COVID really made me think about the need to share my story if it would help in any way. And so for me, that after that first tour of duty, I came home and I, I kind of describe it as I came home to where I lived, to the city I lived in, places that I should, that were so familiar to me and were, you know, I classified them, quote unquote, home, but it didn't feel like home. I felt like a stranger in my own home. It was very odd uh, to say the least, but that's how I felt. And so I knew then I had really been affected by what I'd been through. It was a lot more things. I wasn't ready to go for help. I still was very concerned about the stigma. I, uh, I didn't want it to impact my Navy career negatively. And some of this I have to own myself because at that point in time, the Navy was starting to say, hey, this will not be held against you, et cetera, et cetera. But I was still very concerned about that. I've had been in the past year, security clearance, promotions could be held up as a result of that. And so the Navy was trying to change that. I also was just really concerned about the stigma overall because, you know, I didn't want to be labeled crazy, that my whole demeanor or that my behavior or decisions I made could be questioned because of my experiences. But indeed, I, I do know that I was changed. I was different and I, I was struggling emotionally. I know I was depressed. I was anxious. And there were a number of other triggers. I was having some significant family issues at the time. And within two months of my returning from my first deployment, my son deployed. And that was probably wow. the major factor that tipped me over the edge in that I remember he was out deployed. He had called me the night before he was going out on his first convoy. And mind you, IED blowing up convoys were the bulk of the injuries that we saw. So he's going out in his first convoy, and I know he's scared to death. You can hear it in his voice. He gets up, he goes on that on that mission, and uh, I'm at work. I hear about a convoy in that region blowing up. I was pretty much incapacitated. I had a staff member walk into the office and console me, pray with me. I realized I was in trouble, but it it actually took even more than that. I mean, I because, you know, I'm strong. I can do this. I'm a naval officer. I'm a nurse. You know, I deal with this. And it actually took one day driving into work during this period of time with all these other stressors going on. And I see an American flag on a flagpole. It reminded me so much of the flag draped bodies in our trauma bay. If we couldn't save them, that 2% that didn't make it. I thought, you know, I'm in so much pain. I just can drive this car into that pole and get it over with. Oh my gosh. And scared me too. Yeah. Um, because I went and got help right after that. So it was the start of my journey. It's been a messy and you know inconsistent journey, but it was my first 10 sessions of employee assistance program <laughs> because I was again too afraid to go to the VA, too afraid to go, you know, because I was still so worried about those issues of my career that uh, I went to a private psychologist. Did 10 sessions in which I cried my whole way through describing what I had seen and witnessed over there. 
<laughs> she kept asking me to repeat myself because I was trying so hard. I finished that 10 sessions and I decided, okay, I, I think I'm good from here. And I went on and I, you know, it took a bit of time. And I think it was the issues with my family that finally led me to just continue help because I was on the brink of divorce, eventually did divorce. Uh-huh. And uh, then, you know, of course, panic attacks bothered me, all of that. So I did finally seek help through the VA and actually they were wonderful. So all of the concerns I had, it was private. Nothing was you know, communicated outside of the system. I started getting regular, consistent help. It was tailored to me as a Operation Endurance Freedom Warrior. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been a lot of therapy. I got to say, I've been in different types of therapy. I'm going on now with both deployments and all the therapy, probably 10 years, the last five is since I retired and I felt much more comfortable seeking help that I really committed to the process of finding out what was going to work and help me to regain a sense of stability and mental stability. Sure. I hesitate to say mental stability, but it's how I feel. I was kind of not well-centered or balanced and always in my thinking. The therapy has helped me to rethink that and feel more centered and confident in myself. So let me ask before we go any further, I got 110 questions right now, but, but the first <laughs> one is, Tell us, was your son okay? Because you got that call yeah. and you didn't know if, if it was his group that had been hit. Yeah, yeah. That, that same day, um, he actually called after the completion of that mission and mom was a thousand percent better. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, and, I'm happy, happy to know that. Was not thank his you, group. Yeah. By the way, he, he turned around and a year and a half later, he was deployed again. And then right after he got back, he had to deal with my deployment a second time. This is a whole family thing. And there are so many parallels I'm going to draw in a second to COVID. But this is what I wanted to clarify. So you get deployed first, 2009 to 10. You get back. You have these experiences like you just described. And realize then, in between number one and number two, deployments mm-hmm. that you need to help. I and did. then here comes 2013. And they say, guess what, Commander Dr. Kane, you're going back to Afghanistan. Yep. What did that feel like when suddenly they're sending you back over? You know, frankly, I thought I was good. Um, I I knew what to expect. And I guess that's really what led me to say, yep, I'm good to go. You know, plus the fact that I have a sense of duty. So I, I, you know, I took the deployment and I went and I served and um, it was different, but it was the same. But when I came back, I realized again, I mean, gosh, I did. Nothing had changed as far as the casualties were concerned. We still were caring for 30% children, 30% ANA, ANP, and uh, the injuries were just just so devastating. Yeah. Um, no different than my first tour. And why, you know, other than my, you know, my determination to do my duty, why I didn't think that would impact me any differently, I don't know, but it did. Yeah, you know, some of the parallels I'm hearing as you and I both have in our work have talked to a lot of nurses who've been through COVID. You and I are talking right now in 2022. So COVID's been, gosh, two and a half years worth of our lives. And I hear nurses who've said the amount of death that we saw, just the amount of illness that we saw, these are seasoned critical care nurses who are accustomed to death and high morbidity, but the amount of it was overwhelming. And we know that a number of nurses have had their mental health impacted along the spectrum. And some actually diagnosed with PTSD as well. 
what have you learned in, in sort of thinking about your journey and what you see nurses uh, going through now post-COVID? I know there are a lot of parallels. And you said you noticed that thinking about COVID. Anything you want to share about your thoughts around that? I think I'm even more concerned about nurses who've gone through COVID, frankly. As I mentioned, the Navy and military in general did look to reduce our tours of duty to help hopefully mitigate the impact of witnessing what you see in a war zone. Um, but here, how do you mitigate a two-year pandemic that has produced massive amounts of death and significantly, significantly sick patients? I hesitate to say sicker because it's different. I mean, I was experiencing, you know, head trauma, limbs blown off, you know, which was, was ugly. And I mean, it's children, adults, et cetera, but they're seeing children, adults, and just a whole swath of population. No one, you know, no one's excluded. Their lives are being destroyed. Their health is destroyed by this virus. I don't see how you can witness that in such a short frame of time, that much severe illness and death and not be impacted. Yeah, I'm with you. And there's two things jumping in my head right now about that are different and concerning. One is very interesting that you said when we first started of the warriors, the commitment of the military to getting injured military people out. You had a 98% survival rate of injured warriors that you were at least able to send them on to further care and get them get them out of Afghanistan. 98%. They left our door alive. They left yeah. your door alive. Incredible. And also, deployment was time limited. So you knew you need to make it through the six months, and then they were going to get you home. Of course, hospital systems had no way to know something like COVID was coming. So we know the mortality, especially early on, was incredibly high in COVID patients who were in sick enough to be in critical care. The length of time that people were in these surges was unknown. You know, right. It would be two weeks or two months or two years. And they might get a little lull, a little bit of a break. And we had wave after wave after wave. And it was just so unrelenting. That was the parallels that I saw, and that again, why I thought even to some degree, this is worse than going to war. You can't rotate new fresh troops in. Yeah. Uh, you're yeah. using the same people over and over again, exposing them over and over again. You know, the military, at least when I returned home each time, put us through a warrior transition program, which allowed us to seek psychological help, et cetera, for about you know, a week, two week period immediately post our deployment. There's maybe a few exceptions out there, but I'm sure most facilities were in no way prepared to give that same support to their uh, staff. Yeah, you know, a lot of nurses told me, especially in the midst of the real surges and peaks, they tried to access EAP and the first appointment they could get was six weeks later, or, you know, those kinds of Makes things just in, terms yep. of, in terms of available resources because of the glut of, of right. need. But I think let's just pause for people who are listening to this right now and really get. So here's a seasoned military veteran nurse that's able to say that some of what our nurses, civilian nurses, have seen during COVID is worse than what she saw during combat in terms in of my opinion, yes. Yeah, in terms of mortality, possible impact, in terms of the duration of the trauma, so to speak, to the healthcare professional. 
Yeah, I mean, another another perspective that might be helpful to why I say that is because, at least during my two deployments, I don't think we received more than 75 casualties at any one time. And that was, that was high. Uh, most of our casualty um, counts that would come in, they would dribble in at five, six wounded persons at a time. If it was a really bad incident, 25 really bad incident, as I said, up to 75. But during these peak periods of COVID, hospitals were flooded, period. We're not talking limitations of 75. They were getting patients in in droves and every day. Yeah. And uh, so to me, that just, that was another factor that led me to get to the conclusion that um, in some ways this is worse. And having to make do and patients yeah. in the GI lab and in the hallway and all, all, all that exactly. kind of and exactly. let's, let's just be clear, in no way do we mean to diminish the service of people in the military oh, and for no way. wounded warriors. It's just no trying way. to learn the similarities and differences between the very extreme conditions of, of what you've experienced and that there are some parallels. And I think correct. And this less, is based on my experience. Yeah. This is real and my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It's also that nurses who've been here caring for COVID patients, if you start to let this in and think about what you've been exposed to and perhaps don't feel just right, like Cindy, you talked about coming home just didn't quite feel like home. If you're just not feeling quite right and settled and back to who you know yourself to be, it's perfectly okay to seek help. So what kind of things did you learn? Tools, techniques, things you continue to use that are helpful to you, Cindy? Really glad you asked that because really the, my focus of this was not so much to rehash or relive my experiences. I wanted to give some context, but what I really want to do is say that the, seeking the help is worth it. It is hope. And that's how I have described my journey. It's been a journey of hope. You know, I got to say, I've had several different therapists. One of my therapists jokingly said I fired him, <laughs> but it was really, we reached a point where we realized what I needed in therapy was not what he could give at the time. And he was very gracious about it. But I've had multiple therapists, um, and each who had a different skill set. And I bring that up because I found at certain times in my journey through this journey of hope, of wellness, I found like uh, EMDR to be very effective, eye movement, uh, desensitization, and reprocessing. Basically, you use repetitive eye movements while remembering or re-experiencing remembering a a traumatic event and allowing your brain to process it more healthy way. Cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive processing therapy, I think is what it's called. Basically, um, and this is layman's terms, taught me how to challenge unhealthy beliefs about a situation, myself or et cetera. And of course, uh, over the last probably two years, biggest bulk of focus for me has been mindfulness. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and that is really helping me to, and this has helped me deal with the anxiety portion a lot. And that is keeping myself in this moment, objectively looking at what's going on in this moment and uh, embracing it. And it just helps to slow your mind down. It's, it's an exercise in allowing your brain to rewire itself to slow down and to see things more clearly. I've had a daily practice of doing uh, mindfulness. Uh, gratitude journaling on almost a daily basis. You've shared that this is sort of a continuing thing that you mm-hmm. tend to, given your experiences. You, you right. know, 
it has helped you really come back and feel more like at home now and more yourself. Yeah. Oh yeah. I definitely feel at home. Yeah. <laughs> I'm where I belong. It's been a painful journey, but I've learned so much about myself and I have become more comfortable in my own skin and <laughs> flaws and all. And especially that part, embracing my imperfections. I think one of the things about being an ICU nurse is we're just so used to being in total control, total charge, and getting it right the first time. There was no second time because it could cause the patient's death. It's a pretty unrealistic standard. Not that it's something we shouldn't shoot for, because I think it's absolutely what we shoot for. But being able to give yourself grace when you yeah. don't get it exactly right is so important. Absolutely. Let me ask you one thing, Cindy. There's still a lot of stigma associated with seeking help for mental health concerns. Did you have any of that? And if so, how did you work around it and convince yourself that you just kind of needed to move forward? For a long, long time, I I didn't want to share that I was in therapy or I shared with very few people. Um, I know early on, I had a little bit of experience when I was a manager and I did try to be open with my staff about, about being diagnosed with PTSD. I think their intentions were totally honorable, but I know there were times when disciplinary issues came up that I was being reported to HR for, you know, my PTSD was impacting my decision-making. So it is a double-edged sword. And so I, I tended to be a little more quiet about it for a long time, but probably, again, it probably is much related to COVID. I decided that what you hide about yourself can hold you hostage. Um, at least that's my own opinion. So I, I felt like being authentic and being transparent about my struggles and my journey, I hoped anyway, would have more benefit beyond me. I love that I'm getting well, that I'm still on this journey and I'm getting more well every day. But even more to be able to share that and hopefully have it help someone else get well has far more meaning. And so I decided to be more open about this. I wrote the blog a couple of years ago, maybe three years, been a while now. Uh, that was my first foray into saying, okay, I have PTSD and here's what it looked like for me. And that's a blog so, on the ASN website? Is- it is indeed. Uh-huh. Um, gosh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it's my personal journey with PTSD. Let me ask you one more question. Uh, I know we're probably running short on time, but I could talk to you about this like for hours on end. Um, I know in some of your and my prior conversations, you talked about when you decide to get help or in your journey getting help about having a manager who is particularly supportive to you. And and I think it's wonderful when we have great managers, but I also think in deference to managers, you know, managers don't know how to do everything just right. What would you suggest to a nurse who's kind of feeling like, well, I don't know if I have PTSD, but maybe I need some mental health support. I'm not so sure. I'm not anxious. If the manager's not picking up on that, what can nurses do to elicit the kinds of support that they need, you know, kind of give their managers an opportunity to support them? The manager may not really know. And what were some of the characteristics that your manager had that really worked? particularly helpful. Yeah, and no, I got to say, um, I've been very blessed with uh, the manager. I decided to share some of this with, I took a risk um, because I, I know a lot of people are going to be frightened to do just that. Took that risk and what I found was a non-judgmental attitude 
a, I want to help you through this journey and to see you get the help you need. And how, so how can I support you um, in doing this? And then um, went out of their way to make sure I had the resources uh, or was aware of the resources that I needed in order to get whatever help they thought I might need. So I say the biggest thing, if I had to identify one thing a, a manager could have or a director or leader, let's put it as a leader could have, is that completely non-judgmental attitude. Make it safe for your staff to say, I'm not okay. Absolutely. And I could also see that translating to colleagues could do that for each other. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. One could work in a unit where the manager, you know, managers have 60, 80 direct reports sometimes and so forth. And in their defense, they can't always know everything that's going on for every person, but we can do it one for the other as peers. Absolutely. And that's probably even the most effective relationship for this to occur. If you ask me, because I've been that manager who had 80 to 100 direct reports, and it is very difficult to be all things to all people when you've that much going on. That's also great messaging for those of us who might feel, well, I'm kind of doing okay mentally, and you know, I got through this whole thing okay, but let me look out at my buddies here and be sure that maybe I can be a support to someone else who might be struggling. Yep. Even among warriors, we recognize that brotherhood, sisterhood, that deep connection we have as fellow warriors Yeah, um, to support each other, be battle buddies for each other. Battle buddies, boy, that kind of fits with what people have been seeing and feeling for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, Cindy, as much as you and I, over time as colleagues, we've talked about this. You said something to me that sort of made me really catch my breath. What you hide about yourself can hold you hostage. So I just want to put that out there and have people think about that for a second. What you hide about yourself can hold you hostage. There's a big message in that. I think in summary, what I would say, and you can you can listen and tell me if I got some of the key messages besides that one. First, it has to do with impact. People really letting in the impact of what they've been through. And we're tacking this onto COVID, but this could be anything. We've got folks who work in all kinds of trauma units and see really difficult things all the time. So let in the fact that our work has an impact on our well-being and our mental health. I was really moved when you said I was changed. This experience changed me. And I began to recognize that. And in your case, you recognize you were sort of struggling emotionally. You talked about being afraid to get help. And we talked a bit about the stigma associated with that and how we can be supports and colleagues to each other. The way to get rid of stigma is to start talking about things. What's that? The best disinfectant is sunlight, right? Let's shine some light on this and start to talk to one another. And I think the other big thing I, I heard you say is seeking help is worth it because that's where the hope comes in. Yes. You couldn't have done a better synopsis if you tried. <laughs> thank you. And, you know, oftentimes when we're talking to people in the military, what we say is thank you for your service. And of course, I say that and have said that too many times. But the Warrior in you has really shown up today, Commander Dr. Cindy Kane, um, because it's one thing to do the service that you've done, both as a nurse and as a person in the military, 
but to then be warrior enough to come and talk to me and tens of thousands of people who will listen to this really shows us the warrior that you are and the courage that you have. So thank you for who you are and for being here with us today. Well, thank you. And uh, my message is still thank you to all of the nurses out there who fought this fight for the last two years of battling the pandemic. So thank Agreed. you. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN's online community forums with information available at aacn.org forward slash online community. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.